Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Kim Lane, the Chief Operating Officer for Right to Start. Right to Start believes that everyone has a fundamental right to start and grow their entrepreneurial dreams, and I couldn't agree more. Kim is an amazing guest. I really love what she's doing, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So on with the podcast. Kim, welcome to the Growth Pioneers podcast. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to, to chatting with you since uh, Victor connected us, uh, what, a couple months ago? Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, so you're, you're based in Arkansas, correct? Yes, yeah, central Arkansas, just outside of Little Rock. Yeah, I, you know, we'll, we'll dive into this a little bit later, but you know, it's not often that I get to meet people that have Arkansas roots. We have a couple of, uh, we have some shared, uh, shared connections in Arkansas, which is always exciting. So exciting. Yes. Um, always love to meet a fellow Arkansan or an Arkansas native or somebody with ties to Arkansas. Yeah. I have, I have deep family ties, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But, um, so why don't you t- give the listeners a little bit about, um, your background and, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, my big passion is entrepreneurship, um, and also, you know, strategy and operations and how to create and optimize companies to make it easier for entrepreneurs to succeed. So that's looked at a few different ways. Um, over the course of my background, I actually started out as a journalist covering entrepreneur stories and um, was just so inspired by the work that entrepreneurs were doing. I actually, uh, of a tangent, I was an English major in college and I loved poetry. And there's one particular poem that I think about a lot with entrepreneurship. It's called George Gray by Edgar Lee Masters. And in the poem, he says that his life was like a boat with a furled sail at rest in a harbor, which means the, the sail was never used. Yeah. And he said, you know, if a life with meaning is one that, you know, the boat's on the water and you're exploring and you're trying new things and it could be dangerous, but at least you're doing those things. And, and, and the poem, um, just to, to tie that part up, he, he's deceased. The speaker of the poem is deceased and he realizes all of this when it's too late. And I remember when I first started working with entrepreneurs, I had this moment of like, oh, wow, like they're, they're the boats on the waters. They're the ones taking chances, like they're pursuing their dreams. And, you know, the majority of us have dreams. Many of those are not pursued. And so I've always been really energized and inspired by people who take these chances. So anyway, I was a a journalist talking about entrepreneurs, writing about entrepreneurs, and then um, just got really into, you know, how do I help entrepreneurs? And I actually started working at the Kauffman Foundation um, almost a decade ago now, eight and a half years ago, through their one million cups program and that led to you know running maker spaces in arkansas entrepreneurial support organizations accelerators in the state and then you know um, being in leadership roles at the organizations running those i started an entrepreneurial support organization in conway focused on um, minority and rural entrepreneurs and then i got really involved in the more like the systems work of this so i started working um with kaufman's one million cups program which is a I think we're uh, probably all your listeners are familiar with that program, sure. um, but I work with about 200 volunteers across the U.S. Um, who are running One Million Cups, which connects entrepreneurs, educates entrepreneurs, and inspires them on a weekly basis. Um, but then I also started working with the Global Entrepreneurship Network and doing more international sort of um, entrepreneurial ecosystem development work and working with you know entrepreneurs in Nepal and Bosnia and um, South Africa on like how do you start up your entrepreneurial ecosystem and make it easier for entrepreneurs to um, succeed. I also started working with Facebook, now Meta, to do uh, work on their, they have a program called Elevate, which supports Black and Latinx and Hispanic entrepreneurs and really leveraging the Facebook platform to, to level the playing field for entrepreneurs. And, um, and then have been really honored to work with Victor Wong at Right to Start, which is, it's really impactful because it's systems level change again. So it's looking at entrepreneurial policy. How can we really change the paradigm that we're all operating within to make it easier to succeed? So yeah. that's, that's sort of a very high level, um, broad brushstroke of the work that I've been doing. But like I said, it's, it's all sort of in the same realm of really helping people pursue their dreams and, um, creating a world where people's dreams are more likely to, to come true. Well, I think, Kim, you're officially now my new favorite person. Honestly, <laughs> I mean, what, 
What a kindred spirit. I mean, just just listening to your, you know, obviously the, the poem really struck me. I mean, I, you know, I, I obviously I think if you are supporting entrepreneurs at the level that, you know, the way I think about it, it's truly a calling, right? Like I, I, I see the challenge is it faced. I mean, it's it's obviously an amazing opportunity to create your dreams, but it's it's not without its challenges. And, mm-hmm. and just, you know, people to really see what's possible and help support people is just, um, it's just, I mean, it's a deep calling for me. So I, it seems like we're kindred spirits in this way. Absolutely. And yeah. And I'm just excited. I mean, I, Victor is one of my dear friends. I mean, we, when I first started this work at Eton about 10 years ago, my CEO handed me a book and said, read this. It was the rainforest. And it was pretty dense, to be honest, <laughs> and a little academic. And so I looked it up, and they had a workshop. And I was like, a workshop's mm-hmm. much better for me. I am a better, I'm, you know, better at learning in person. And immediately upon meeting Victor, I was like, these are my people. Like, mm-hmm. I, I was so fortunate to get connected to him in the early days of the work. And, you know, his work has really laid a, found, a foundation for what we've done here. So when he suggested we talk, I listened and, and I agree. I think he knew we would hit it off immediately. So Exactly. Just, yeah, happy to have yeah, you on it, here. So, it, is, it is really cool. Like, I, I experienced that, too, in terms of when you start to meet people in this space. And it's like, oh, my goodness, they're singing my song. Like, these are all the people who have been thinking the things that I think. And so it is super nice to, yeah, to be connected in this kind of global network of kindred spirits. Totally. And, you know, it's, it hasn't been a thing for that long. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that this idea of an ecosystem builder or anybody helping support entrepreneurs was not even really recognized. I think, you know, it was early days, Kauffman Foundation, those started Startup Champions Network, really trying to um, you know, uh, professionalize the idea of being an ecosystem builder or even, you know, the idea of being an entrepreneurial support organization. I mean, there was early adopters totally. and things, but but really kind of on a global scale, it's it's reasonably new. Definitely. Yes. It's We, we need to band together. And, and I, you know, it, what I'm really excited about, I mean, it sounds like you've done a lot of great work. I mean, One Million Cups is a great program. We've been running it here for eight, eight years or nine years or something. And the work with global entrepreneurship, thats I think that's really amazing. We did a little work with the um, Mandela Washington Fellows, but you know most of our work has really been focused locally. So what an interesting perspective to be able to kind of look out across the world and, and see the commonalities and probably a lot of the different unique challenges. Yeah, it is really, really interesting. You know, how, how many of, you know, aspects of entrepreneurship are truly universal. Um, and then obviously there are major, major differences when you talk about international entrepreneurship and things like that. But I will say, you know, back to the the poem, um, a big commonality is just the um, ability, people's appetite for risk taking yeah. and how, you know, of course there are different barriers um, depending on where you live. But I think it is really interesting and of course inspirational to talk to people who, people who have taken the risk versus people who have an idea and are afraid to take that risk. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think that people are starting to, well, maybe not, maybe it's just pe- maybe me seeing what I want to see in the world, but it does seem like people are starting to recognize the power of entrepreneurship more globally and, and really in terms of making your own way. And um, yeah, I'm just glad that there's, you know, we're, and we're able to distribute information out in the world in different ways. But so let me ask you a question. So how you got probably connected to Victor through Coppin Foundation. Is that where you guys got originally connected? Yes. So, you know, now you're a chief operating officer of an organization called Right to Start. What was sort of the original inspiration for you to, to start Right to Start? Yeah, so this is, uh, Right to Start is definitely Victor's brainchild. And, you know, I I look back very fondly on the day when Victor called and told me that he was starting this, you know, organization. And we chatted about what it would look like. And, you know, we were volunteers together building the organization for for over a year. And, um, you know, there was just a lot of, I think uh, we both really believed in the mission, you know, and what, what was needed. And, and so the picture Victor painted, um, early on was, you know, we have a disconnect between the grassroots entrepreneurs and their supporters and the grass tops, policymakers and civic leaders. And, you know, the grass tops are creating the system that the entrepreneurs operate within. And so how do we seek to close that gap? 
And, you know, yeah, so that, that was sort of the impetus. And of course, as you know, just from my background, like I was bought in immediately Sure. And um, and Victor had written this manifesto, which is now on the Rect to Start's website, and that was sort of like our um, our guiding light in the beginning. And yeah, we just sort of took it from there. I mean, one of the things that I just really appreciate about what you're doing is, you know, I have, you know, being in the trenches, I have tried to move policy in our state largely unsuccessfully, to be honest. I mean, we've gotten a few small things pushed through, but... You know, it's it's sort of a David and Goliath, right? You, you know, I'm mm-hmm. here out there representing the little guy, and then all of a sudden, you know, like something like non-compete reform. You get mm-hmm. in there, it makes perfect sense from an ecosystem and a community's perspective, and then you're like, oh, the casino industry doesn't like it, or this person right. doesn't like it. or the, And then, you know, they're lobbying, and, you know, it all goes out the door. Um, so, you know, I've felt the, the – I've been, you know, front seat to the frustration of trying to get something through. So the fact that you're, you know, really trying to bridge the gap between, I love this, the grass roots and the grass tops is powerful. Um, You know, so tell me a little bit more about what Right to Start is doing to kind of bridge the gap and support entrepreneurs. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the big, you know, call outs we had early on was there is no entity in America to advocate for entrepreneurs, which is why we have that disconnect. And if you think about so many other issues, humans rights or, you know, any guns rights, animal rights, there's an advocacy group and there's not one for entrepreneurs. And so, you know, that was sort of, again, sort of the impetus was how do we build that? Uh, Your question, what are we doing about that? So one is, you know, we have a three pronged approach at Right to Start and it's changing minds, changing communities and changing policies. And one of our very first pilot projects was to create this advocacy program where we actually hire advocates in different parts of the country and those advocates really connect locally the entrepreneurs and policymakers. So what that looks like in real life, because I know that that might sound abstract, but we worked initially in Northwest Arkansas and um, we, we hired three advocates in Arkansas, and their role was to meet monthly with entrepreneurs, really just to listen to their stories and document the barriers that they face. We know there are so many um, entrepreneurial support organizations doing amazing work across the nation. We are seeking to connect with the entrepreneurs locally and, you know, connect them with the ESOs the, who are already in place, but then make sure that the local policymakers hear the barriers that the entrepreneurs are facing. So part of what the advocate's role is, is to actually document those barriers. And then, you know, at right to start at the HQ level, we can see the barriers faced by entrepreneurs in every part of the nation where we have these advocates. So it's a really interesting framing of like, oh, there are these barriers that people are facing that no one is talking about. So just to, for instance, in Arkansas, our advocates are documenting these barriers and then we were seeing like, oh, we see a lot of the same barriers coming up when you're meeting with entrepreneurs. One of those was the licensing fee for businesses in their first year was so high that businesses weren't able to start. So our advocate actually came to, you know, came to us and she was like, what do I do about this? I found the barrier. Now what? You know, so she worked with our policy team and, um, created a recommendation to what if what if we were able to waive that barrier waive that fee for businesses in their first year and because of her role with right to start her work in the community she was asked to join the city's economic vitality steering committee and and she made this recommendation and they adopted it into the city's draft for um, 2022 it's supposed to be voted on this quarter um so that's just a really good example of you know it just took it took our advocate, Daymara, working locally with entrepreneurs, surfacing those barriers, and then talking about them. And yeah. then a change happened. So I yeah. think that's just an example of like, what if we were able to see that that type of ripple effect across the nation? So we'll have those local wins, but then we're able to also, you know, we've been working with um, just so for instance, the U.S. House Entrepreneurship Caucus. We're able to talk about those local wins there as well and about how, you know, policy change in big and small ways can have huge impacts on entrepreneurs. And, you know, the the stats are there. We know that that new jobs come from new companies, not old ones. And so if you just look at a very granular level, okay, so new jobs create, new companies create new jobs, but in Northwest Arkansas, for instance, people aren't starting new companies because of the licensing fee. So you can see like, okay, well, so 
if this fee is waived and more companies start, then maybe we'll have more jobs in Northwest Arkansas. So yeah, I think it's really powerful. Totally. No, I, I mean, getting out there and hearing the challenges for Sam with the entrepreneurs and then being able to look across the country and, and really see that it's, I mean, that's really powerful. It's, you know, there can be some microcosm issues, but then you're kind of seeing that across the board. And then, you know, what I heard is, you know, big companies um, have a lot of political power, right? They, they're entrenched in that. Collectively as a group, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, but individually they don't have quite that same power. And you know, you've got the Chamber of Commerce and things like that. But even in the chambers, what I've seen is you still have big companies get in there and have more sway. And so the issues that might be a real issue for the small companies tend to get drowned out by, not always, but tend to get drowned out by the, the bigger players in there. So really having that, what I'm hearing is really having that voice of somebody that represents the entrepreneur is really powerful in that to, to make sure the policymakers get uh, get access to what's really going on on the ground. Right, and I think that's why Right to Start is filling such a critical need because big companies, um, they have advocates. You know, they have yeah. lobbyists and, you know, they have resources where small companies just don't. Oftentimes, entrepreneurs are so heads down, they don't even have time to talk about the barriers that they're facing, right? They're, there's no place to even talk about that um, historically. So I think that's why it's important for, you know, Right to Start to say, like, we have your back. We will yeah. reach out to you, we'll understand your barriers, and then not only will we just document them and, and talk about them, but we'll actually, these barriers influence the pro-entrepreneur policies that we work on from a policy level. So that's the other kind of leg of the stool is policy. So we have all these pro-entrepreneur policies that we recommend, and we've actually... Um, are really excited because a, a few states actually in 2022 are introducing Right to Start Acts, which will have these pro-entrepreneur policies and hopefully um, change entrepreneurship in those states as well. Um, the first Right to Start Act was introduced in Missouri last year and it passed the House, um, which was a great sort of precedent for future um, sure. Right to Start Momentum in the future. And then also from the media side, part of our role is just how do we make entrepreneurship a community priority for everybody? Not just for the entrepreneur, not just for the entrepreneur's family. You know, I think a lot of times it's one of those things we hear and it, and it feels like a very specialized issue like oh entrepreneurship somebody who just wants to start something um that doesn't ap apply to me i think a part of our role is saying like but it does because it's about job growth it's about you know economic mobility it's about the quality of life in your city so if you can look at it if you can frame it like that it matters to everybody even if you're not the one starting a company so, you know, for instance, in Arkansas, back to use that example, um, our, our media team worked closely with Daymara, our advocate, to share that story in the media. And so now, you know, she's had multiple op-eds and we're able to talk about why entrepreneurship matters because it does. So I think part of, it, part of our job is just that framing as well. Totally. Well, I mean, it's one of my missions. And actually, Mike, our CEO, really talked about this is like, how do we make Nevada the most entrepreneurial state in the nation? So we're obviously we're competing now, awesome. you know, globally. Right. So, you know, and, and but, you know, how what does it really mean to take a step back and say, how could we be the most entrepreneurial state? And this is what I love about right to start. I mean, a you at the highest level, you're framing it as a right, you know, and, and Americans, we love our rights. Like, exactly. Come on, let's, you know. <laughs> And we should all have the you know, the right to be able to go out and create our own future. And yet, you know, how is government standing in the way? And, you know, we're a pretty libertarian state. And I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, the flippant answer is like, I just want the government to get out of the way. Well, you know, the reality of it is, is that the government drive creates the framework in which we operate. And so... You know, it's great. Yeah, if they get out of your way, great. But the reality of it is you're operating inside of a set of rules. And so we need your participation so that we can create a, a more even playing field for entrepreneurs, um, which, again, exactly. I think is so powerful that you're doing that work. So what are the you know, what are some of the policy things that you see that are affecting entrepreneurs? I mean, I, I, I have you know, I know occupational licensing is a big issue. Um, at least it was. I, it's I have to say this out loud because it's just shocking. I think Nevada is one of four states that requires um, occupational licensing for interior designers. And in fact, you need 10 years of experience to be an interior designer and pay like a fifteen hundred dollar fee which makes no sense to me because there's no life safety involving. There's nothing. I mean, it, it, we're one of four states. It, this must be somebody's pet project. I have no idea how this got started, but like they can't, that just doesn't make sense. So, you know, I'm curious, <laughs> this is my own problem, but what are some of the, you know, what are some of the big policy issues that you're seeing um, kind of nationwide or that other states are tackling? 
Yeah. So some of, and, and by the way, on Right to Start's website, we have a field guide for policymakers and it breaks it down to state, local and federal um, policies. But yeah, just just some of some of the sort of top ones that we talk about frequently. One is just driving local learning by redirecting 5% of workforce training and economic development funding into helping Americans start new businesses through local and online entrepreneurial support organizations. So what if we were able to incentivize people to start a business by getting the right training, um, access to that training, and even just talking about that as an opportunity right now through different um, support like WIOA, the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act. That's one. Another so really is taking, kind of, just, just real quickly on that, sorry, you know, taking 5% of which, which funding of like workforce, workforce development training, mm-hmm, workforce training mm-hmm. and really targeting it towards entrepreneurial type support. Right. So like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if we were able to um, help train, you know, in um, technical assistance and things like that, that entrepreneurs need to get started, if we were able to redirect some of that workforce money for entrepreneur education, that'd make yeah. a huge difference. um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Another is cutting tax hassles, something that we talk about a lot. Uh, I was just talking about, you know, the licensing fee, but also the the tax hassles. You know, if businesses can defer income tax deadlines or skipping the filing deadline, um, you know, if net income is below $5,000 in the first year or something like that would be a huge help. You know, I think anyone who has started a company, taxes will eat your lunch. It is no joke. And um, it's it can be really surprising for entrepreneurs as well. So I think, you know, if we're able to help give entrepreneurs a leg up, and again, all under the framing of this matters for the economy, this matters for job creation. So if entrepreneurs are, are hindered because of all these barriers in place and, and less likely to succeed, that hurts the, the entire economy. So yeah. I think the, the tax hustle is another example of something we could do to help with that. Yeah, it's like a, uh, it's almost like a, a, like a tax coupon, right? Like, I mean, how many people give a, an offer like, hey, we'll give you the first month free and then you sign up? I mean, if you can help an entrepreneur get started by, you know, deferring or waiving the first year when they're under $5,000, ultimately they're successful and then you get the tax revenue for the life of the company. Exactly. So it's exactly. not, you know, you're not, it's not a handout. It's more of a, a discount to incentivize creation, right? Right. Yeah. And another is just creating access in different ways. So access to government contracts. What if we were able to dedicate like a 5% uh, 5% of government procurement dollars to businesses under five years old so that, you know, government contracts can be a life changing contract for entrepreneurs. What if we were able to carve out some of those that are specifically for entrepreneurs so that they have a little bit more of a leg up in, in yeah. competing for those? So yeah. what does it look like today on most of those? Do most of these go to larger established companies? Is that really the issue? I mean, I'm sure I can infer that, but it would be, obviously it would give entrepreneurs a leg up if they had access to the, if they had a sort of a carved out piece of those contracts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No worries. We'll, we'll, we'll keep Thanks. going on that one. Yeah. It's all good. So what are, what are some of the other uh, policy issues that are really, at, you know, kind of the top of your list? Yeah. One is, um, as free to compete, prohibiting non-compete agreements that prevent Americans from starting new businesses. So right now, actually, one in five Americans are held back from starting a business because of non-compete agreements. And, um, you know, as you noted earlier, this can be a touchy topic, but I think the sort of the brass tacks of it is people people's hands are tied from starting a business because of these non-competes. And so if we were able to sort of rethink those, it would create opportunity for entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, this one's yeah. very sensitive to me. I mean, I've tried multiple times to do, and we've gotten them. We've gotten the non competes watered down a little bit, but fundamentally, you know, what what I'm seeing in this world is, you know, it, the way it plays out here is even nurses aren't allowed to go from hospital to hospital. And so, like to me, it just, and I'm I'm hopeful that there's a broader movement going on. You know, with COVID and people's ability to work anywhere, this idea that I can handcuff people to a job goes out the window. I mean, I think people, you know, when you're losing employees and you're freaked out, people want to use those type of controls. But the reality of it is, is mobility is good for the economy. And there may be, you know, there's definitely some examples where I think that's, you know, it wouldn't, it makes sense to have some non-competes if you're being compensated for it, if you have specialized positions. But for like your front level engineers and, you know, your nurses, all, I just cannot see how that is good for the local economy. And yet, you know, they still seem to live on in in our community and many others. So uh, this one frustrates me to no end. So I'm really glad that's part of the package. 
Well, and we've talked to, you know, we have a lot of firsthand, very compelling stories of entrepreneurs who, who who have great ideas and they just can't start their businesses because of, you know, because of not compete. So we do know that we know that that's a barrier, you know, and so it's a matter of uh, what can we do to, to bring down that barrier for entrepreneurs. And then well, one last one is just debt relief. 48% of young people who want to start their businesses cite their student loans as a reason they cannot become an entrepreneur. I know I had major student loans and um, I think, you know, when I, I was paying those off, I was probably reading the poetry, right? Instead of starting a business. <laughs> um, so I think you know, one of our recommendations is deferring the student loan payments for Americans so that they can start, they can take that risk. They're not, they don't have that major barrier um, standing in their way. Yeah, that's such an interesting one. Is that more of a state level or is that a federal level one that you guys are working on? That would be a federal level one. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that, you know, I, I have you read Freakonomics at all? Have you yes, I am a big Freakonomics fan. So, I mean, this is such a classic Freakonomics thing. Like, you know, how does student debt really, you know, student debt and entrepreneurship connect? Like, and, you know, you're, you're, you, you nailed it, right? Like if you could, you know, if you have $100,000 in student debt, you're probably going to go take a job because you need to pay it. If right. you may not take that risk, but if right. you are able to, you know, find a creative way of structuring that or do something like that opens up a total different opportunity. And I think that's such a unique one. It, you know, when we're looking at state incentives, I think we need to kind of get really creative and start thinking about what are these real barriers? You know, like we do a lot of state incentives for, you know, deferring um, sales tax on manufacturing equipment and things like that. But what if we, you know, if we want a bunch of engineers in our community, what if we helped offset student loan debt for engineers or something. I, I don't know. Again, I'm sure people will just blast me for that. But, you know, you got to figure out a way to incentivize what you're trying to create. And I, I love that one. That's a really fascinating uh, approach because we, I mean, they do this for doctors. Like if you decide to uh, go work in a small community, they will pay your debt. I mean, what an interesting opportunity. What if we help do that for, you know, innovation entrepreneurs in, in rural communities or something like that? I think exactly. I, I love I love that idea. Well, and I think also, well, two, two things that come to mind is, you know, one, I think when you look at sort of one of these, one of these recommendations at a time, it feels just like a drop in the bucket, you know, mm -hmm. like redirecting 5% of workforce training or, you know, um, the debt, student loan debt relief or something. But I think together it really paints the picture of the systems level problem that we are talking about. Like mm -hmm. all of these things are, you know, you know, we say entrepreneurs die the death of a thousand cuts. And it's so true. It's like mm -hmm. every little barrier in the way prohibiting them from succeeding. And, I, you know, I think on a hopeful level, when we're able to look at it high level and say like, what if we were able to change, you know, even just some of these, what a difference that would make in the lives of entrepreneurs. So I think it's, it's, it, it paints a picture of, of the magnitude of this situation, but also of the hope, uh, I think that we can, that we can create with right to start. And something else I think is important to note is, you know, I've done a lot of work in rural areas of Arkansas and I would do, I would do these like hands-on workshops with high school students and schools. And many of them, you know, were on food stamps and had just no, no um, hope for their future at all. Yeah. And there were, you know, often there were not very many jobs in those communities. And, and I would think, you know, when I would, would talk to the students about like, man, what if we were able just to plant a seed of inspiration that yeah. they can start their own company, you know, instead of getting, you know, getting out of the scarcity mindset of there's nothing for me here. There is no hope for me here. Instead is what if I could create a company that's, that created jobs for my community? Like, I think, you know, the workforce development money and things like that, it creates a paradigm shift in people and it helps them start to think entrepreneurially, which is its own win. So I think I just wanted to know that too about the power of entrepreneurship, the mindset in addition to the actual job creation aspect of it. Absolutely. I think, you know, we're, we work with a local group called Audacity and they oversee a program called the Ruba 
fund. And they were taking, um, you know, giving small grants, like I think $25,000 grants, plus it, it may have been a little bit more, a little bit less, but then also um, mentorship out into the rurals. And the business plans aren't, you know, Silicon Valley plans, but they really impact the community. It's like, if I can take exactly. this you know, loan and take my hair salon trainer into a training center, I can help train this other person. And then that adds another person. And all of a sudden you've created five jobs in a community and it creates a community center. And so like those interventions are supremely powerful in these rural communities. And I think this is one of those things that is, um, it, you know, I don't work with in the rurals very often. I love going to the rural communities, but a little bit goes a long way out there in terms of, like you said, the inspiration, um, which I think is amazing. It's great that you did that work with high school students. Um, the one thing, the other thing you said that I just really struck me is this idea of a death by a thousand cuts. And, and the idea of looking at this as a system challenge. I think fundamentally mm-hmm. the challenge with doing some of this other policy work is you go in there in a very narrow issue and it gets very clearly attacked. Like, mm-hmm. and then, but if you take this kind of systems approach and really outline, look, the problem is not non-competes by themselves. It's lack of capital. It's, you know, lack of this, all, this whole thing. And you can kind of see this picture of how it all comes together to create barriers. That's a much more compelling story. And I think that was the thing when I first heard about Right to Start that really struck me. It's like, we don't need to go do rifle shots. We need to come out and create a system change. And so right. people can really understand because, you know, you, you get in the minutia of, right, of non-competes and yeah, there's good, there's good arguments to and from and, you know, whatever. But to be able to really present a com- comprehensive package that says this is what is standing in the way of entrepreneurship is a powerful paradigm shift. And it sounds like that's working. So you, you have made some progress in other states. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the other work that's been going on and some of the success you've seen? Totally, yeah. So so the first Right to Start Act was passed in the Missouri House in 2021. And, you know, I think that was, you know, we actually, there's a representative, Travis Fitzwater in Missouri, and he reached out to us and was a huge um, proponent of of our pro-entrepreneur policies and and took this, you know, he wrote, he, he sponsored the first Right to Start Act and, you know, carried it through the Missouri House. And like I said earlier, that was sort of the first domino to fall to, to showcase like what this can look like at the state level. And so after that, we had a lot of interest from other states and are currently working with um, a handful of states in 2022 to introduce Red Star Acts in their states as well. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, the one in Missouri, for instance, had several of our pro-entrepreneur policies. So to, to your point, you were saying like, you know, you could really dig into non-competes, for instance. But when you put them all together and really and frame it as a right to start act, this is all about helping people realize their their um, innate right to start a business. And I think also just thinking from a policy perspective, too, like, you know, America was built on entrepreneurism. And I think, you know, so many of those businesses now have become large businesses. And so I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about this right that they have to start a business. And so, yeah, anyway, we've been really excited about the momentum with Right to Start Acts. And you can sort of start to see, um, you know, the dominoes start falling. If, if you know, a handful of states introduce acts this year and, and more next year and more the next year, like the momentum is starting about changing, changing the system, you know, to make it easier for entrepreneurs to succeed. Totally. And, you know, I'm sure that the system that exists, it was not necessarily intentionally designed to to keep entrepreneurs out, but over time, like exactly. this change and this change and this change. Exactly. And so, for, so if you're able to come in at a 50,000 foot view and say, look, these changes that happened over this whole time, now the net effect is we're preventing new business creation or we're creating unfair barriers. And especially the, the, these, if you look at these as a group. So I think it's part of it is just shunning a light on exactly. what's happened and saying this is the result of all these things that were well intended that now together create a barrier that was unintended. So let's just go fix that and bring back our right to start a business. I love I it. I think that's exactly right. So much of it is just connecting the dots that, and again, it's just because there has not been this advocacy group for entrepreneurs in the past. So if no one says like, you know, these things, new businesses create new jobs. of young people want to start a new business, but they cannot because of student loan debt. If we were able to defer student loan debt, more young people could create new businesses. Like if no one is connecting those dots, it's just not going to happen. And so like we saw in Arkansas, like all it took was somebody saying like, 
hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we waive the business licensing fee? And they said, okay. And so it's hopeful that, you know, obviously it takes more, um, depending on the issue, um, than just servicing it. But I think part of it is just, like you said, shining a light, planting those dots to showcase the importance of reducing these barriers. How do you get momentum behind this? You know, like, is it, is it being led by a bipartisan coalition? Is this like all the entrepreneurs getting, you know, pitchforks and torches and going to the, you know, the, the house? Like what's, what, what does it take to actually get this thing moving? It is such a good question. So it it is, and I have a, you know, a complex answer to that question. So I think it's, it's grassroots and grass tops involvement, right? So in the beginning, um, a lot of our work is just educating on what is entrepreneurial policy. Why does it matter? Why does this matter for economic development? Why does it matter for the local community? And then, and so I think that media arm of our work is is really paramount. So we do a lot of local media, national media, just talking about why entrepreneurship matters in general. Um, but there's also, you know, we've had a lot of people reach out and just say, like, I love what you're doing. How do I get involved? And so that's a big part of this, too, is creating this movement of people talking about right to start, your right to start, your right to start a business, bringing people into the movement, um, creating sort of this digital community of people talking about the issue. So there's a very like grassroots mobilization piece, but then also just talking about it with the grass tops. And then of course, having the wins under our belt helps a lot too. So if we're able to point to stories, I think, you know, I think it can feel very abstract. Well, what does that mean connecting the grassroots and the grass tops? What does this mean that the system is tilted against entrepreneurs? We're able to paint the picture to say like, look, we've met with a hundred entrepreneurs in this one city who say these are the barriers that they face. It really starts to paint a picture of like, oh, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Like this is something I can take to my policymaker. And it doesn't have to be right to start taking it to policymakers. It can be anyone in the community. So I think, you know, you can start to see like, there are these stories in every city in the nation. And if we're able to really start to chip away at those and what they look like, um, we can make a difference. So right now we have... We have advocates in five cities in the nation, and we're currently looking at growing to 15. Um, we're going we're gonna to have 15 advocates by the end of this year and currently have 17 ambassadors in our network. So we have these advocates who are sort of our boots on the ground, like I said. We also have a whole ambassador network of people who, this is those the people in the beginning who said, hey, I want to get involved. What do I do? So these are mostly like policymakers and civic leaders who are already often doing this work, like working for the Economic Development Commission and things like that, and just want to um, take this to the next level. So we convene the ambassador network every month and talk about like ways to advocate for to start in your local community. So we see that ambassador network growing. We see the advocate network growing. And then we see growing our the movement in general. So it's, it's a multi-pronged approach. Yeah. Um, and we, we know we have ambitious goals, but we're also um, really confident about about them. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, it's a whole, it's a systems level in itself, I guess. I think you are on the beginning stages of something miraculous in terms of change. And, I, and I've got to say, I know that we will find um, advocates and ambassadors for you both in the North and the South. I mean, we're working very hard. Um, you know, this is a big year for Nevada in terms of uh, entrepreneurship. I, there's a lot of things happening. I know that we will find some people that will be great advocates and supporters. Uh, this is just the start. So I'm excited to hear that that's, um, that that's happening in other places. But, you know, one of the things that um, Victor mentioned to me was kind of an interesting, you know, getting some of these things pushed through, um, you know, the policymakers has been like a bunch of interesting bedfellows. I mean, you know, I didn't, you know, is this run by... It seems like you're finding common ground across Democrats, Republicans, and Libertarians, and Independents, and all of that. What do you think that's all about? Yeah, uh, such a good call out. You know, I think there are so many elements of entrepreneurship that crosses the aisle in a really beautiful way. And, you know, I think, yes, we have seen... We have worked with with people across the aisle on several of these issues, particularly like the the Right to Start Act of Missouri comes to mind. Um, But, you know, there are supporters for different aspects of it just because of the universality of starting a business and creating jobs and wealth creation. Um, And so I do think that there is a powerful message there of why this matters for everybody, regardless of your 
ideology. Um, And so, yeah, we've definitely seen that in in our work in very real ways. That's great. I mean, I I really feel like our community is sort of the brackish water between the Cowboys and the Burning Man crew, you know, so like, but they can find common ground about independence, you know, freedom of speech, these types of things. And even though maybe they have some different views, there's some common thread. So whatever we can do. And to me, you know, I do feel, maybe again, I'm biased here, but it feels like America was built on entrepreneurship. This is like part of our DNA. And maybe we've just gotten away from a little bit. So to go really go back, it it doesn't seem like this should be that hard of a thing for us to get behind it's like part of who we are that maybe we've just forgot about a little bit i think that's exactly the message it's you know this is something that lives within all of us but we just don't know it yet you know and how do we how do we remind and and draw people's attention you said you know to that right that right that we have and um you know it may not be a right that everyone wants to pursue their own business but we should definitely know that it exists and be supportive of others who are pursuing that yeah yeah. So how do people support Right to Start? I mean, is this I mean, your foundation? Are you, you know, can people donate to the, like, how, do, how does the uh, Right to Start organization get fuel to, to fight the good fight? So yeah, Right to Start is a nonprofit and we do accept um, donations for anyone who wants to get involved in that way. But we also encourage people just to, to join our movement. You know, if that means following us on our social media, media channels or um, following our newsletter and things like that, there are lots of different ways to sort of join the movement. Um, even if, you know, a very granular way to get involved is just support local entrepreneurs, you know, go to your local coffee shop. Like when we were just chatting earlier, something that came to mind to me is, we have a little local food truck that's just like a two minute walk from my house. And every time I go, I think like actually on the back of his menu, it's a printed menu. It says, when you support an entrepreneur, you support a dream. And I always Mm. think like, yeah, this is why we do this work at Right to Start. So I think on the very smallest level to support Right to Start, support your local businesses. um, And then there are all kinds of ways to get involved on our website, which is righttostart.org. I love it. I, but you, I mean, poetry, inspirational messages. I need you on all the podcasts. You're just, I'm like, I'm totally fired up about okay. supporting entrepreneurs. <laughs> Yay. Well, we're happy to, so honored to be here and happy to come back anytime. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, so, you know, you've done a lot of other um, work in community. I mean, what are some of the things that, especially when it comes to the underserved community, what are you seeing mm-hmm. out there? Like, what are, you know, what are some programs that you would, you know, call out? I mean, I think, I think on everybody's mind right now is like, how do we bring people to the table that have otherwise not been at the table? And I got to imagine with your work yeah. in global entrepreneurship and, and in Arkansas, you've seen this. I mean, are, are there some things that you could, you know, help? call out as like really, you know, tier one programs or things that where we should take a look to, to see if there's opportunities to partner or kind of model their model, what they're doing. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, a big call out with working in underrepresented communities is, and this is, this is from recent conversations actually with Right to Start Advocates as far as what are the barriers that we're seeing? How can we seek to reduce those barriers? A lot of times we talk about policy barriers, um, you know, these systemic barriers, but this is actually something that I think is very doable for all of us in this work is, you know, when you have a program or you have a resource, rather than waiting for someone to come to you to access that resource, to really be intentional about going into the community. So this is something that we've seen a lot through our work of, you know, um, people in underserved communities want to start a business and they, they don't know that the entrepreneurial support exists or how to access it. Often it's not in their native language. Um, So I think there's a a big benefit to actually going to where the entrepreneur is. And this is something I actually saw through my work in rural Arkansas. You know, often I would drive two or three hours to go into a a school in a a rural town, you know, with spotty Wi-Fi and, um, you know, high poverty rates. And to go into the school and talk about entrepreneurship, you could see the light bulbs go off. I mean, it was, it was, it was a paradigm shift absolutely for those kids. So I think there's just a lot of value to getting out of our, you know, the modes that we normally operate in and going to the people who need the support, um, just to make sure that everyone knows these resources exist. And I think that goes a long way to, to, you know, leveling the playing field, making sure we're being very intentional about that work. Yeah, no, I, I totally resonate with what you're saying. I think, you know, when I first joined Edon. I went in and said, look, I'm never going to be in the office. And they kind of looked at me like, why would she be in the office? I'm like, because 
the entrepreneurs are in the coffee shops. They're in their buildings. I mean, you know, it's not it's not for them to come to us. It's for us to go to them. And but I really appreciate what you're saying about kind of extending that beyond. I mean, I think that, you know, I went to the known places. I think what I'm hearing you say, especially for underrepresented founders, is you really got to go into these other communities. I mean, we have a large uh, Latina uh, community and, um, you know, just going down into their to to the neighborhoods and going into their businesses is a big deal. I mean, we work with Audacity and that was one of the things that they demonstrated was, hey, we just you just need to go down and talk to people and like, you know, get get the programs written in Spanish and just do all of these things that, um, you know, weren't necessarily top of mind when we started. So I, I think that's such sage advice. Exactly. And we just had this conversation. Um, we, we just had a discussion about barriers with our advocates this week. And um, a big call out was just like going into thinking about, like, I think, I think immediately people in the ecosystem building space may think of like maker spaces, libraries, co-working spaces, accelerators. And just to, to go back to what we were just saying, like what the advocates were voicing was like, no, it's churches, it's community centers, it's local supermarkets, it's barber shops, it's things that, you know, again, they're not part of the, the typical ESO space, but they're gathering spots in different communities. So being very, very intentional. And I also think the best way to do that is to talk to people in those communities and see um, and ask, where do people congregate? How can we make sure these resources are known to these communities? Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, what we've heard is a lot of like, you know, just building trust and, you know, going the extra mile to try and establish trust. And, you know, again, you know, I look at the ecosystem and I, I see all of those spaces that you're talking about, but they're clearly, um, you know, we're missing a big squat, you know, big portion of the population. So just really being intentional about getting out there. Are there some specific programs you've seen on a national front that, you know, would, would be worth calling out. I mean, there's so many good programs. I mean, you know, obviously one million cups is near and dear to your heart. I think I might've mentioned to you, we were like the sixth program. We just, I was walking, I was in Kansas city randomly and we were talking to, um, Nate at the time. And I was like, can we bring that to Reno? And he's like, sure. And so we, you know, it was all concentrated in the Midwest and then Reno. So I feel very proud about being one of the early one million cups, um, cities, but I think there's a lot to be learned. Like, what, where other programs in other communities are working really well that would be something that we could look at replicating here in Nevada? Such a good question. I mean, I am a big fan of of the programs that are very easy and efficient and um, not expensive to run. So, one million cups is a great example. Like, if you have, you know, coffee and a meeting space, and even now they're meeting outside, you know, in parks or whatever, and all you have is an entrepreneur sharing their story, like, then you have the program. You know, you create this gathering spot, you create this place of trust for people, a safe space for entrepreneurs in the community. I also work with the Global Entrepreneurship Network. They have a program called Startup Puddle, which is very similar. And I work with a lot of communities internationally with like zero dollar budgets. And it's like, well, here's how you can make this work with with no money, you know, with volunteers and in-kind donations and things like that. So I'm always a big fan of those because I think when you start to think about like, okay, we have all these entrepreneurs, we see the value, how do we even begin to boil the ocean? It can feel very overwhelming. But if you boil it down to like, well, why don't you just host a coffee meetup, you know, and, and or just everyone get together at a certain location, talk about entrepreneurship, talk about barriers, talk about ways you can help each other then I think it feels much more doable. So I would say those, I would, and not to mention the thousands of um, ESO events across the nation that are just hugely valuable. You know, I think part of the challenge now is there are so many um, of those events and support services that it's just a matter of connecting people to them and making sure entrepreneurs, I mean, I've heard this in so many communities across the nation of there's an entrepreneur, I know there are all these resources. I don't even know where to start. Do you have a roadmap? Where do I go for that? Where do I go for capital? You know, so I think just at this point, it's a lot of figuring out, optimizing, right? What already exists and making sure entrepreneurs know that as well. Yeah, that, I mean, it's it's funny. It is a big problem. Like at, at the beginning, you're just like, I need to get resources in the community. And now it's like, oh, I need to help navigate through. I mean, I've always felt exactly. like one of our roles and you know, if we could create a bunch of community ambassadors that are really just you know, uh, guides or to help people journey through the community. Like you need someone to help curate what mm -hmm. your experience is. So if, you know, someone comes in, they're raising, you know, $20,000 to start a bar or a restaurant, 
and then they say, hey, like, introduce me to all of your angel investors. That's probably the wrong thing for them to do. You know, you have to kind of mm-hmm. redirect them. Hey, maybe you need to go talk to the Small Business Development Center. So there's there's a fair bit of navigating because it's not like a linear progression through the ecosystem. I mean, it depends on where you're coming in, where exactly. you're going, all of that. So just it really important to uh, educate people that can be ambassadors or, or you know, uh, or guides through the ecosystem. I mean, I think this is especially, it's interesting in our world because um, Vegas ostensibly is behind Reno from an ecosystem development standpoint, but has a huge opportunity. I'm just so excited about what's going on down there. You've got Startup Vegas, you've got the Blackfire Innovation Center, you've got all of these things coming together. And finally, it seems like there's a groundswell there. But, you know, one of the things it reminds me of is um, the importance of what you're talking about. Like it's grassroots community culture first. Like you really have to have that. And then, you know, some of the bigger things come as a result of it. Definitely. Yeah. It it is like chicken or the egg. Like you need both. You need the entrepreneurs, you need the the inspiration, you need the meetup events, you need the technical assistance, you need the mentors, you need the capital, you need all of it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we do we do see this groundswell now in lots of places, which is really amazing. It's just a matter of how do you now optimize this to make yeah. it work for the entrepreneur. So I, I just so appreciate all your insights. So I have to ask you this. So you've been all through rural Arkansas. you got to give me your top three catfish locations. You know, I don't know if you know oh this, my but my goodness. family... It's from Arkansas. And so, you know, fried catfish is a thing. You know, I used to go to a little town called Cord, Arkansas, and there was a little uh, fish house. I don't even remember what it was called, but it was the only thing in the town. And we would drive like 45 minutes to have catfish. So you must know the secret hotspots of Arkansas. Those are the best. Well, I do. Yeah. You know, my husband... was a basketball coach for like 15 years. And so they would play all over Arkansas and we would go scout games for conference or for um, tournaments. And uh, we would end up going to all the little local catfish places, some in yeah. gas stations. Some, we actually, one of one that's very nostalgic to me is there's a, um, a mountain called Petty Jean Mountain in Arkansas. It's beautiful. We camp there all the time. And there's a little gas station that you see right when you make the right turn to go up the mountain. And that gas station, we always would stop there and get bottled sweet tea and catfish. <laughs> they served you in a little like paper bag. So <laughs> awesome. eat it as we're going up the, the mountain to go camping. So that's got to be my favorite. Um, but yes, um, Arkansas catfish, you can't beat it. Oh, no, it's a thing. I mean, it, to this day, I think about, you know, this one place, it, it had two things on the menu, the big one and the little one. And the big one was all you can eat. And the little one was like five pieces. And my grandmother used to always get tails and milk. And then they had fried green tomatoes. So it was just this very deep nostalgia. So um, it's very yeah. nostalgic. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the salt of the earth type stuff right there. Yeah. I'm all about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kim, you know, it's honestly, it's been just a great pleasure. I look forward to being able to meet you in person at some point. I know that uh, this will not be the last time we're going to be working closely with your team um, on Right to Start in Nevada uh, in the coming months. And uh, yeah, just thank you so much for taking some time to to chat with me and help us learn a little bit more about um, how we can bring uh, the Right to Start to America. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor, Doug. Thank you so much. And we're excited for Right to Start to Work in Nevada. Yep, sounds great. Take care. You too.